I don't know that there is a greater sound than the praise of God's people singing to the Lord. It's the greatest thing. Thank you for your praise this morning. Our God is truly worthy of all of our praise and honor and our glory. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are humbled to be invited into your presence. The Lord of glory, a magnificent God, a holy, holy, holy God beckons us into his presence because Christ has made a way for us unholy sinners to have the imputed righteousness of Christ that we might be invited into your presence. It's an awesome thing and it's a wonderful thing and we thank you, Lord. And we thank you, Father, that you have instruction for us as well. And so this morning we've gathered to praise you, to pray, to call out to you, to encourage each other, but we've also gathered to hear instruction from you. What is it you have for us, Lord? Feed us today, O oh God, from the bread of heaven. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew Henry seems to sum up for us the Christian life when he writes, both from the mercy of heaven and the malice of hell, the afflictions of the righteous must be many. Or in other words, when bad things happen to God's people, where does it come from? I think we are first required to struggle past the hurdle of the fact that bad things happen to God's people. It's a hurdle for us, emotionally. The second hurdle that we have to overcome when we think about the afflictions and the troubles is that they are allowed from the mercy of heaven. That's a difficult hurdle for us. If our God loves us so much, why does he allow so many afflictions and so many troubles to come our way? That's a massive topic in itself. We know that it's a good God and he has purposes in all that he does. But I think one of the greatest and biggest hurdles after those two are how to reconcile when the troubles and afflictions that come upon us are brought to us by people who are supposed to love us. Are brought to us by people who are supposed to be God's people. So um, some of the lessons I've learned in the pasture, in God's pasture, are about trouble. Big trouble, painful trouble, 
when wolves are in the pasture. We um, introduced ourselves to David last week. David being anointed to be king because King Saul had disobeyed the Lord and was rejected as king. Some of the backstory to that, of course, is that David was probably about 15 years of age when he was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the future king. And it wasn't for another 15 years or so until he be, actually became king. And in that period of time, King Saul was still king. King Saul was the representative of God's people. David, unknown to Saul, was at the time, was anointed to be king. And from the point of David's anointing until King Saul was removed from the scene, David was always in trouble. He was constantly on the run for his very life. As Saul became increasingly jealous of David and David's great blessing from the Lord, the exploits of David. So it appears that David struggled with the same thing we struggle with. How can God's people be the people who are bringing me so much trouble? There were the Philistines who were the avowed enemies of the people of Israel, but the greater trouble that David had was internally. It was, it was from, and I'm going to use quotation marks, God's people. You know, God's people shouldn't be bringing trouble. God's people shouldn't be bringing trouble on God's people. In fact, the identifier of God's people are that we love one another. In fact, this is how we know, Jesus said, this is how they will know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Not that you bring trouble on each other. Not that you bring afflictions upon each other. Not that you bring painful things to each other. Maybe you're not a Christian at all. So, you decide. When bad things happen to God's people, it's bad enough. But by the hand of God's people, it's even worse. That's what I want to look at this morning with you. God's good plan for David was turning into a nightmare. The majority of his time was spent on the run from his own people and particularly his own king who was literally trying to take David's life. And we encounter this particular situation that is, that resulted in a psalm called Psalm 34, whereby David decided that a good idea would be to take refuge in Gath, the hometown of Goliath. Now, he had already killed Goliath. I'm thinking most of you would think, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. You take refuge in the enemy city of the champion of that city who you just happened to kill? Who would even think of doing something like that? Well, David did. Would you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 21, please? 
When wolves in the pasture are frequently sheep with devilish fangs, the community that's supposed to love you is hurting you, and you're tempted to seek refuge in enemy territory. The recommendation from David, having experienced this, is take a deep dive into Psalm 34. That's what we'll do today, Lord willing. But first of all, let's get the backstory here in 1 Samuel. 21, verse 10 to 15. So before that, the verses before that, David had run to Nob, um, a place where he encountered a, a priest who actually had in his possession the sword of Goliath. And David took it because he was on the run. And we pick it up here in verse 10. That day, David fled from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, isn't this David, the king of the land? That's an interesting, I underlined that in my Bible, the king of the land. He wasn't the king of the land. Saul was still the king of the land. But they, the Philistines, viewed him as the king of the land. I think that's fascinating. Anyway, it's just me. Isn't he the one they sing about in their dances. Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. David took these words to heart and was very much afraid of Achish, king of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. And while he was in their hands, he acted like a madman, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Achish said to his servants, look at the man, he's insane. Why bring him to me? Am I so short of madmen that you have to bring this fellow here to carry on like this in front of me? Must this man come into my house? We'll stop right there. I invite you to flip over to Psalm 34. It feels to me as I've pondered this event in David's life that this momentary madness was maybe a little bit of resentment. I, I, I can't be certain of this, but I just wonder. A little bit of resentment at how hard God was making his life, how difficult he's anointed to be king and, and everything goes south for him. And I wonder if there wasn't just a little bit of resentment in his life whereby he decided to say, well, you know what, if, if they, if Israel... If they're not going to look after me, if they don't care for me, if they're not going to protect me, maybe the Philistines will show me some respect. Problem is, David wasn't a Philistine. And this was never going to be a fit. Never. They saw him as a threat. So, um... This morning, I, I've, I, I want to share with you five long-term life lessons that I'm pulling out of, out of this event in David's life and the combination with the psalm, because the Psalm 34 is, is David's retrospective on this event, and we know that because the, the subscript or the postscript, or no, subscript in Psalm 34 is of David when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech who drove him away and he left. By the way, Abimelech, you're saying, wait, wait a minute, I thought it was Achish. Uh, Abimelech seems to be like a title. 
like Pharaoh in the Philistine system. So Abimelech just means the leader, and it happened to be his name, happened to be Akish, okay? So that's, that's what that means. But anyway, uh, who drove him away and he left. And then David writes this great psalm. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. My soul will boast in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look on him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. Well, we are left saying, David, seriously, you might have taken your own advice. Don't miss the point. This is after the fact. David writes this after the fact of his crazy moment when he went to the Philistines. So here's some lessons. First is this that David teaches us. Praise needs to precede the taking of any action. Rest is much better than running. David was running, running, running. Life term, ter, long term life lessons for short term crises. That's what this is all about. Instead of going to God, David went to Gath. Where are you running? You might be running right now. I don't know, I don't know your story. Instead of going to God, where, where are you running right now? According to the story, to which, by the way, Psalm 34 is an acrostic, which means each of the phrases starts with a different Hebrew letter. It was very artistically put together. Um, David waltzes into Goliath's hometown, rocking Goliath's sword as a sidearm, and thinks it's a good idea. Methinks had he have got alone with God and spent some time praising the Lord, he wouldn't have done this. And when he gets there, what he doesn't anticipate is that the people of the land are going to do a deep search of his Facebook and a social media frenzy takes off. This is 
This is David, the king of the land, uh, the, the guy who they made a rap song about that Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his tens of thousands. Now, David hears this. He's, it's a media firestorm. David hears this, and he gets afraid. So he shows up in Gath. They recognize him. I don't know whether he showed up in Gath thinking, I'll be anonymous. They won't notice that this is Goliath's sword. I, could, I can get a job as a mercenary for the Philistine army because I need a job. I don't know. I don't know. We're not, it doesn't, we're not filled in on all of the story, but for some reason he thought it was a good idea. Because he made it on the basis of his emotions instead of praise. Now, we all vary in here in terms of the degree to which our emotions drive us. But if you're a very emotional person and driven significantly by your emotions, I invite you before you do anything ever, and this goes for all of us, but you emotional gadflies out there, go to Psalm 34 fast. Because when we make decisions on our hot emotions, we usually live to regret them. King Achish could have killed him. The sweet psalmist of Israel, set up to be king, could have been killed. It would not be unusual for a king of that stature in a society whereby social services sensitivity was zero for the insane, would have just killed him. And there's evidence at the end of it where it says, do I, do I have any shortage of madmen? Do I, do I need this? Why do you bring this person to me? Do I need him in, this, in my house? This is what you should do, David says. Extol the Lord at all times. This is really, the first three verses are like a collective, whoa, did I ever dodge a bullet? I mean, seriously, that's, that's what this psalm is. This is a big woo, a massive thanksgiving, and an instruction to do better in the future. I will praise the Lord at all times, always in affliction and in good times. Praise the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. It's in praise and worship that the Lord draws near to us. Psalm 22, 3 talks about when we praise the Lord. Some translations say he inhabits the praise of his people. It goes beyond just inhabiting. Inhabit, yes, he draws close in praise, but he is rightfully enthroned in our hearts as we praise him. We come in here, this is why it's such a beautiful thing to gather here and lift up our, our praise to the Lord. It is right to praise the Lord. It is our rightful expression to the Lord, but it also reminds us after a week of mess that God is in control 
The Lord is on his throne and the Lord is on the throne of my heart. And I need that. I, I need for me not to be on the throne. I, I need for my emotions not to be in charge. I need for God to be in charge. I need this. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So why did David run? Somehow David momentarily thought Gath was bigger than God. A better bet, it would seem. I think he ran because he felt all alone. Now listen, second, although you feel all alone, you are never all alone. If you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, you may feel alone, but you are never, ever alone. This is why your feelings have to be overridden by the truth. You are never alone. What does David say? I sought the Lord. What, even in Gath? You could, David, you could contact the Lord in Gath, in enemy territory? Yeah. Yes, you can. A anywhere you are. A anytime. I sought the Lord. And you'd say, David, I'm sorry, you're in Gath. You're in Gath. I can't hear you. I can't hear you, David. Step outside of Gath and maybe I sought the Lord and he heard me. This poor man called and the Lord heard him. This poor man called. Now, can I pause for a second here to point out that this is God's man. This is God's choicest. This is the apple of God's eye who had run to the enemy. This is the sweet psalmist of Israel, fully assured of his future. He was to be king. And he couldn't muster the strength to do the right thing. Why do I really camp on this with you? Because we need to cut each other some slack in tough times. If David could run to Gath, so might you. And God's not done with you. And we're not done with you. Your friends are not done with you. Your family's not done with you. We don't give up on you. God didn't give up on David. It took some time to get here. It took some time to write Psalm 34. He didn't write it five minutes after escaping Gath, I don't think. It took some time. It takes some time. This poor man called out. He's a super low point, downcast. Everybody else is doing just fine around him. In fact, 
Hasn't anybody noticed that everybody's trying to kill David? Doesn't Israel notice? Isn't anybody going to come to my, my, my side? Isn't, where's my family? Where's my brothers? Where are the, the guys, those stately tall guys? Who, where are they? Why isn't anybody helping me? Great disappointment will fall on your heart if you hope that everybody's going to rise up around you and take up your cause. They don't. They don't. They got their own lives. They got their own hassles. They got their own trouble. They got their own afflictions. They got their own focus. But you are never alone. God is there. He delivered me from all my troubles. Wait a minute. We'll, we'll talk about that later. This is poetry. This is ideal. When feeling defeated in your soul, remember your God isn't defeated. So get enthusiastic about him. David says, listen, those, those who look to him are radiant. See that, verse five? Those who look to him are radiant. That, that word, radiant, can, can best be described by the look on someone's face, by the look on a mother's face, when a lost child is placed back in her arms. Can you picture that face? That's what this face is. The radiant face of someone aware of the presence of God, that's this. Third, um, I, th I think God must have sp spoke to David in his heart, asking him, what are you doing here in Gath? What, what are you doing here, David? It reminds me of, um, of Elijah when he ran out into the wilderness and God asked him, what are you doing here? Why are you here? First Kings 19.9. Is God calling? <laughs> what are you doing here? What, what are you, God's choice, doing in such a bad state? Spittle all over your beard and scribbling on the walls. Very kingly, David. There's an interesting play on words here. David in verse eight says, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's an interesting play on words between taste here and in the subscript or at the beginning, the prescript that says when David pretended to be insane. It's the same word. The word insane and the word taste are the same Hebrew word. Okay. Now, the only way you can reconcile that is there is a play of words going on here, which is, it, it, it's this, the sense here is to change, your, change your, your orientation, change your taste. Change your taste from insanity to sanity. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is changing from madness to sanity. From the world of madness that ignores God and runs for refuge to crazy places, change your thinking about this. To taste and see that the Lord is good is the most sane thing that a human can do. That's what this is. Ignoring the Lord is insanity. 
That's what the play on words is here is all about. Make the change sanity and you won't have to feign insanity. David pretended to be insane because he wasn't tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. He was dabbling in Philistine territory. Change your taste, David. You're leaving a bad taste in everyone concerning the ability of God to take care of you. That's the flip side or the other side of this when we run to the enemy is what this does. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him, not refuge in the enemy. And then he has, David talks about the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, you his saints, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. And he says, I will teach you what the fear of the Lord is. Fear of the Lord. Fear God. And your temptation to be an agent of sin will give way to be an ambassador of righteousness. The longer you shun the people of God and, in effect, God, and seek solace, With the secular, the more you become like who you are with. David, um, I won't won't take the time right now because it's fleeting to to look it up with, but, but I encourage you to look at 1 Samuel 27, 8, 9, 10. You will see that David started to act like the Philistines because he was hanging around with the Philistines. And here David talks about God is the essential food for your busted soul. Taste him. God is the impenetrable shield around your shattered life. Don't just look at him. Go full in. Lean into him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then he says God sets a perimeter around you. Angel encamps around you. The angel of God, the angel of the Lord protects you to rescue from, verse 4, fears, to rescue you from enemies, verse 7, to rescue you from troubles, verse 17 and 19, teaching you the fear of the Lord when you're tempted or contemplating to do what is wrong. Rather, do what is right, regardless, with your tongue, with your lips, Turn from evil, do good. It's not about just contemplating good, it's about actually doing it. Engage in it, David says. Choose to do good, what is right. Turn from evil, seek peace. Trouble comes looking for you, don't go looking for it. Your life as a follower of Christ is to be a contrast to those who disregard the Lord, not a copy of it. Fourthly, And you're waiting to get to this because you've heard these statements. He will rescue us from all of our troubles. He will take us away from all of our uh, bad situations, all of our evils. Listen, promise of divine rescue is not a promise of immediate rescue. Promise of divine rescue is not a promise of immediate rescue. David here is teaching us something in the psalm. All of our troubles, many of our troubles, verse 6, 17, our broken-hearted, crushed heart, verse 18. Many are the evils against the righteous. That's a statement, a fact. Many are the evils against the righteous, verse 19. We live in the midst of sin's playground. 
And God does not lift us out of that. Now, mind you, sin's playground in our lives is limited to God's sovereign purposes for us. I don't have the time to take you into a journey of the purpose of suffering and affliction, but it is all throughout the scriptures. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials. But here's what we have promised to us, that the Lord comes near to the brokenhearted. He doesn't prevent our hearts from being broken. It's in the brokenness of our heart that he promises to draw near. The Lord saves those whose souls have been, who he has first allowed to be crushed. But he promises to save us ultimately. See, what David did is what most of us do. He devised a short-sighted relief plan. And this psalm is all about the long look. This psalm is all about having God, having him near us, having his promises come true, having him take care of us in the long run, ultimately, if we stick to the long purposes of God. God's immediate plans for all of us includes permitted evils. It does. I would, be, I would be not telling you the truth if I tried to sell you a different salvation than the one you have. But he accompanies us through the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't promise to remove the valley. because he has his own purposes and our greater good in mind. Let me close it with this because I want to close it with an ultimate statement, but ultimately, okay, ultimately, God's deliverance isn't temporary or partial. It is complete and eternal. Look at how David finalizes his psalm. A righteous man may have many troubles, and we do. In fact, often the more righteous, the more troubles. But the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. I can't wait to get to this to talk to you about it. Because you're like, hey, I had a broken leg. Evil will slay the wicked. Listen, evil will slay the wicked, but. And the foes of the righteous will be condemned. But the Lord redeems his servants. No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. So let me just finalize this. Evil will ultimately destroy the wicked. Those who run for refuge to wickedness, that wickedness will ultimately destroy them. On the other hand, all of the troubles that you face and the afflictions that you face, and they are many, I've been with you for almost all of them. 
and they are many. All of these troubles lead the righteous to refuge in Christ. They who seek refuge in the wicked will face destruction and condemnation. And the word condemnation means that you have to face your guilt and face the punishment of your guilt. It never leaves. But on the other hand, us who know the Lord, He redeems us. He redeems His servants. He purchased us out of the slave market of sin. Souls, literally souls of His slaves through the sacrificial merits of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who promised us salvation. It's this psalm whereby John the disciple recognized a statement about Christ. And he pulls into his story, into his story at the cross, a mention of a detail that for us, it's interesting, but we don't really grasp hold of what it really means. When John writes in John 19, 36, his vision of the cross, he says that not one of Christ's bones were broken. Now, if we just take that at surface, it's an interesting detail, but we often wondered, why is that really important? Because the Roman crucifixion was such that ultimately they came along and they broke both of the legs of the victim so that they could no longer push themselves up and they could no longer breathe and they would asphyxiate. But Jesus was gone, dead, his body was dead before the Roman soldiers came to break legs. So John says not one of his bones was broken, pulling it out of Psalm 34. But what's the, what's the significance here? Unbroken bones. It's a fascinating and really, really important reality. It's not just an Old Testament echo that John was using. It's not just a, a prophetic connection. It's what it meant it's what it meant to God's people to hear this statement. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken to the ancient mindset. This is powerful stuff. Do you remember when Joseph was about to die in Egypt and he said to them, he said to his people, when I die, make sure you carry my bones to the promised land. That statement of Joseph about the bones carries over to Exodus 13, 19, where it says they brought Joseph's bones to the promised land. It carries over into, into Joshua, Joshua 4, 24, 32, a reminder again of the bones of Joseph. And it is a reminder to us in the New Testament, Hebrew 11, Hebrews 11, 22, by faith, Joseph requested his bones be taken to the promised land. What is the significance of the bones? And, and then when you read uh, the instructions, the ritual on the Passover, the Passover lamb, you're never supposed to break the bones of the Passover lamb. 
It was a symbol of the ultimate Passover whose bones would not be broken. But why? What, what does all of this mean? You, you get to, to Ezekiel and you, you come across the, the valley of dry bones and, and the bones are brought to life. What, because the bones are brought to life, the idea is that Joseph hoped that God would bring him back to life again. The ancients believed that God would resurrect those who were righteous to eternal life. It's not a new concept. It's not a New Testament concept. It was what they believed. Remember, Jesus was talking to Martha, and Martha said, yes, I know there's a resurrection at the end. This is not a new idea. This comes from this. Take my bones to the promised land, Joseph said to them, because I believe by faith that God is gonna raise my bones again someday, and I'm gonna live. And so it was down through the ancients that God is to keep our bones. God will raise them up again. And so when Jesus was on the cross and not one of his bones were broken, the symbol to the righteous was, yes, resurrection. And sure enough, Jesus rose from the grave. At Calvary, not one of Christ's bones was broken. First Peter, it's kind of a neat um, hymn that the Gettys have just written. I've got the lyrics up there for you, I think. Do I have the lyrics up? No, I don't, okay. First Peter 5, 10 to 11. Peter writes this, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. There it is. Will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. In affliction, you bring wisdom that my comforts can displace. How my true and greatest treasure is in you, the God of grace. That's this story. That's our story. Our Father, I thank you for the grandness of this psalm that grew out of a bizarre moment in David's, your servant's life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you have accomplished out of of the mess in Gath, the sweet psalmist of Israel writes a psalm for the ages to comfort our hearts and give us instruction when we are tempted to take refuge in the enemy. May we extol you at all times, O Lord. May your praise always be on our lips in the good times and in the troubling times. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man or woman who takes refuge in him. May it be so of us, O Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I commend the wisdom of our fathers and our forefathers who thought it would be a good idea to put Psalm 34.3 on the wall 
so as God's people assembled after a week of afflictions and troubles and challenges and mess, we could look and gaze at that and say, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. And I'm grateful that they translated it that way. Some have translated it, oh, glorify the Lord, but it's really, oh, magnify the Lord. Glorify is a different word. But I want you to know that this magnify is not like taking a magnifying glass and, and making something that is small look bigger. This is more of the magnification like a telescope that makes something that is massive but has, appears to look very small look the way it really is, massive. When David wrote that, he was expressing the fact that he had allowed God to become small in his sight lines. And when that happens, everything else becomes big. Our troubles, our afflictions, our mass people. So David says, no, 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 magnify the Lord with me. Make certain that you are looking at the Lord the way he really is the size that he really is, a big, massive, powerful God. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, Calvary. Let us exalt his name together. Our Father, we thank you and praise you. You are our great God through the good things and the joyful things and through the mess and heart-crushing things. You do not change. You do not abandon us. You will rescue us. We need to rest in you and take refuge in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.